0: Hey everybody, it's Richard Harris and Scott Leese here with another episode of the Surf and Sales Podcast. Uh, we are here with a really good friend of ours, uh, someone we both love, admire, respect. And of course, he's my uh, more handsome, thinner, twin brother of another mother from another entire continent, literally. It's amazing. Uh, Matt Cameron of Sassy Sales Management. Matt, thanks for coming on.
1: Hey Richard, hey Scott, great to be here. Yes, another continent, uh, another accent, here I am. Um, and to be honest, uh, whenever I get asked to, to speak at things, somebody inevitably will say, oh yeah, yeah we're really glad to have you here, you've got a great accent. They never say, you know, you provide really good interesting insights, it's just the accent. So I'm pretty sure that's why I'm here, so thanks for the invite guys, that's fantastic.
0: <laughs> that's the best part about being an American, is that we don't even know how blissfully ignorant we are.
2: Speaking of speaking of which, Matt is uh, currently hanging out in Las Vegas, Nevada, where uh, I, I watched an amazing speech last night from your mayor. Yes. We should all, we should all be so lucky.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll let everybody else uh, look that one up and uh, no comment because I have to live here.
2: Yeah. <laughs> so we were talking a little bit offline about how um, you know you were working at at Salesforce, and I think. They were around, um, kind of a hundred million ARR when you got there, but you had an interesting story, and I'd love for you to tell it again about how you kind of um, pushed them a little bit to start moving into some some bigger deals. So that maybe that's a good place to to start.
1: Yeah. Sounds like a good idea, yeah. And just for context for people in terms of where I'm at these days, so I started SASE sales management in about 2016, which was born of that experience, I think. So um, for anyone who's interested, what we do is we train the go-to-market teams for uh SaaS companies specifically. I really enjoy it. So um, we don't do individual contributors, SDIs or AEs, but uh, frontline managers, SCs like sales engineering, sales enablement, ops, all that good stuff. Uh, Because uh, from that time, back in 2005 through to when I came to the States in 2010, I just couldn't find the right sort of training I wanted for my leaders. Um, You know, you'd be sitting in a sales training room, sitting next to somebody who's selling photocopiers, you know, it just wasn't right. So uh, back in 2005, I I joined Salesforce when they were 100 million, so a decent sized company. Uh, But where I was in Sydney, Australia, um, there were very few people. I think I was employee number six. And they were still very much an SMB-focused company uh, globally. In North America, they just started really doing quite well in enterprise. So they had large companies like Merrill Lynch joining. Um, my boss at the time was a guy called Jim Steele. And Jim had brought his crew across from uh, Ariba. Um, and that crew stays together to this day. They're now over at Inside... Uh, no... Excuse me. They went from inside sales to Yext. Uh, and, you know, he was standing on the um, stock exchange podium there, ringing the bell for the second time because he was there at Salesforce as well. Um, and they were doing well, but they needed someone in the region to help them increase their average deal size and really get into those, you know, financial institutions and whatnot. So that's why I joined. Uh, it was super exciting. And uh, I remember, you know, within the first couple of months, I did a deal with eighty-eight-zero users, which to most people listening would sound pretty, pretty small. But for us, that was a big deal, you know, and and I didn't mm. know any better. So instead of asking for, you know, monthly terms or, you know, quarterly payments, I was like, no, it's going to be an annual contract and we'll take two years cash up front. Thanks. And everyone lost their mind. <laughs> well, I didn't know any better. I'll just ask for it. And there you go. So, That's awesome. so that was the early... Early journey. and look, I, I was with Salesforce five years, and it was one of the most fun times of my life. It was really amazing.
2: That's great. So, what were you doing prior to that? Have you always been a sales a salesperson, and and did you you know grow up like selling baseball cards or lemonade or whatever you know kids were were selling? Did you have business ideas all the time? You know, I, I did. I, you did.
1: My head was just mental with ideas the whole time, I, you know. And I used to frustrate my friends because my way of filtering ideas was to tell everybody what they were, um, and with the idea that, you know, they get pushed away quickly. Um, and it just got them out. And then if I found an idea that I was committed to, I tell as many people as I could because I don't like to let people down. So I tell you I'm going to do something, I'm more likely to do it. So I still use that trick today. If there's something yeah. I know is going to be difficult. I'll tell it to people I care about and, and it holds me accountable. So What's the most sales story is a little amusing. Um, I, was, I, I went and studied computer engineering um, and I was no good at it because my math skills are rubbish. I moved around a lot when I was a kid. I, I went to 13 schools across Holy four different smokes. continents. Yeah. Wow. So you miss, you miss bits, right? There are gaps in your learning. And when you go from you know, the States to Malaysia to Australia to New Zealand, the the education system is different. So my um, English comprehension and communication skills, you know, got developed because they had to, but my maths are terrible. So computer engineering might not have been the smartest thing to do. Uh, And particularly then it was hardware engineering. So we're talking hardcore. Mm. So I did two years of it and part-time I was at IBM as I studied to pay my way through. And my boss said to me one day, Matt, know, you're not a very good engineer. I think he said technician, not a very good technician, And you talk a lot. You should go do marketing. (laughs) So so I took his advice. I went and did marketing at university and got an internship with Hewlett Packard uh, where they paid full-time and allowed me to study while I did it for a year. um, And halfway through that year, I kept looking over at those sales guys who were going out for their fancy lunches and meeting lots of people and seemed like they're having a lot of fun. I was like, I want to do that. So I transitioned into
0: it. and That
1: was the beginning.
0: So Matt, what was... Go back even further, though, back to these, you know, you had these ideas as a kid. Like, what was one of your crazy ideas, if you remember off the top of your head? What was one of the ones you really just got passionate about? Or even one that you were like, this is cool, but nobody else got it?
1: Yeah, well, a couple, actually. So I'll give you a missed opportunity and the one I took that was a blow up and too early. Uh, So my missed opportunity was... um, I can't remember when from my kids, but once it stuck with me, when I was 21, I was at Hewlett Packard and I thought, you know, there's a lot of good stuff I create here at work that's non-proprietary, you know, it's not stuff that's secret, but and I just like to have it. So, you know, back then, the only way to store documents and whatnot would be to stick it on a thumb drive, USB or something like that and, you know, take it home. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if you could just go online somewhere and stick them in some sort of repository, right? Oh, and, man. And keep, right? Yeah. And, but then, you know what I thought? And here's my problem, because my, my psychographic profile, if you look at the 16 different profiles you can have, and I know, Scott, you're probably aware of most of this stuff, I'm a paranoid, which is very helpful in enterprise sales, because I always assume I'm losing, right? <laughs> Until I win, I assume I'm losing. Yeah. Helpful, uh, lucky I'm an opt- optimist, so I can push through it. But anyway, so what I did was I thought of all the ways that I could get beaten, and at that time, the telcos, the AT&Ts of this world, they owned the bandwidth. So I thought, well, it's gonna take a lot of bandwidth. At that time, you get charged a lot for bandwidth. I thought, if there's any measure of success, they'll just kick my ass. So I didn't do it. So that's so 1994.
2: You, so you, you talked yourself out of the cloud.
1: You- I talked myself out of Box and Dropbox in 1994. Yeah.
2: And oh, so that, that's
1: it. one story. And another, <laughs> another story I think you'll find amusing is a few years later, um, I, I thought of this idea because it didn't exist in New Zealand. Um, and essentially it's, you know, Postmates, Grubhud, Uber Eats, but we didn't really have widespread internet use at home. So what I did was I printed a fridge, uh, a menu of 15 restaurants with a fridge magnet on the back of it. So I would go out there and distributed all the, you know, thousands of these things and they cost about, I don't know, two or three bucks to print. Um, and then, you know, you'd ring us up and we'd deliver your food. and you know, it it's revolutionary. It's amazing. Um, however, what I found was <laughs> that, you know, three or four months into it, one of the kids lo- loses the menu and you stop ordering from me. So I, do to, I need to refresh, which is really expensive. So mm. after 18 months of being a non-internet-based Uber Eats or Postmates, uh, I lost $80,000 at 25 years of age.
2: <laughs> oh, man. That must have stung. That must have stopped.
1: Oh, yeah, it did. But you know what? It didn't kill. It was really good for me because I was very humbled by it. Because until that yeah. time, you know, professionally, I was doing great. For a 25-year-old, I was kicking ass. And, um, and Yeah, most uh,
2: 25-year-olds was, do not have 80 grand to lose. So that's one way yeah, I can. got really
1: lucky. I got really lucky. I went from Hewlett-Packard, and I can tell you the actual stats. I'll never forget. I was 21 years old. and was on 21 grand a year. They offered me to stay at a you know, marginal in, uh, increase, but I got a job with a distributor of hardware for back then a company called Digital Equipment Corporation, no longer exists. Um, and uh, they offered me 60 grand a year. And I was like, holy crap, triple it, I'm Yeah, I'm gone. And so yeah. I, I didn't yeah. actually finish my degree. I went off and did that. And then two, two years later, I got offered a job for 90 grand a year. I'm like, this is amazing. So at this time, I'm like, you know, 24, 25. And then I got a job with Electronic Data Systems, um, and it was my boss from the company I was with previously. It was called Wang, which again went into Chapter Eleven in the States, no longer is. He he and I both went there at the same time, and um, I think it was the best negotiation I've ever done. It was done in an uh, airport lounge with the executive from the States, and um, they put me on a base of one fifty with an OT of three hundred at twenty five in nineteen ninety eight. Wow. Right. And wow. so look, I won't claim I'm good at anything, but I reckon I can do a pretty good salary negotiation.
2: Yeah. I mean, where do you think that, that negotiation came from? Where did the, those skills come from? Or was it just like right place, right time? I mean, that's, that's incredible. I, I, think,
1: I think that's always part of it and you can't take too much credit. I think circumstance and context, you know, being in the right place is helpful, but frankly it's social proof and social proof is something I keep talking to people about. It's, it's, you know, doing the right thing is always the right thing. And, and, you know, build social capital with people that can be helpful for you in a genuine empathetic way.
0: Yeah, well, one of the
2: one of the the best ways to do that, I think right now is, is to actually do what you say you're going to do, which is becoming quite rare, or and has maybe been rare for for a while. Um, In particular, with the kind of mass networking and, and brand building and everything that that people are doing it's real easy to say you know let me know if i can ever be helpful to you and then do nothing about it it's something entirely different to you know actually go the extra mile or two and and find ways to be helpful to somebody or if they specifically ask you for for help to actually deliver that, that particular help you know
1: yeah let, let's let's talk about that for a second because um you know uh right now is a really good time to figure out who might be hurting and how you can help in a genuine way. So for our business, right, we do training companies. I've got a bunch of VPs that gave me early support, um, you know, and put there before we were proven, right. Um, you know, these days it's, it's much easier, but early on it's who the heck is this company? Who are these people? So I'll never forget that. And so, you know, in the last two months, I've reached out to them uh, with, a, with a really, let's like say, listen, I expect, that you know morale could be up and down depending on the context of your company i've been through this i was you know at 2000 uh, i was selling um for eds right the dot bomb we were selling to companies relied on tech so it was very painful 2008 i was at Salesforce. it was very painful so if you like you know can i can i join a sales team meeting and just 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 as a help out and i'll tell i'll give you specifically the pet talk that I think your people would need and some specific tactics and mindset that they could use to get through this. Um, and I had a really wonderful response. And I don't, I mean, I would think of the probably four that I've done recently, I don't think any of them would have managers that would be sent to my training in the next six months. Maybe never, because you know I've trained all their teams already. But it's the right thing to do. And people don't forget that you know, um, who knows in three years time when they're in a different role, they'll forget that act of genuine kindness and empathy. Right. So I think, I think we all need to have that mindset. Don't, don't don't be short termist about what you do for people.
0: I think I'm, I'm doing the same thing. Like I'm definitely offering up lunch and errands and Hey, if there's something I can do, whether even not only to old clients, but even new, right. Like, Hey, you know, just people I know from LinkedIn I'm like, Hey, if you need this help, let me know. Um, I know Scott's been doing a lot of that stuff. I've had a lot of one-on-one advice. People are freaking out. Like, what do I do? I just got laid off. So I, I totally got it. I, I, I love that you're doing that. What, um, but I have a question before now, cause I know you and I don't know the answer to this, but I would suspect you did stuff like this even before now it was in your DNA. So even before COVID, How are you finding ways to add value, to give back, to create that social proof for your current clients?
1: Yeah, I think go back to to my my individual contributor selling days. Um, I just had this mindset where I used to think about um, social capital in terms of debits and credits and in a non cynical way. I I was like, you know, the reality is. We achieve things through our networks and our friends, right? And so I used to think I never want to be uh, on the negative side of a ledger with anybody. So uh, when I'm selling, I would always think, what's going on for that human right now? What you know? What what are they what are they thinking about day to day? And is there anything that I can do that would be genuinely useful to them? And this actually comes from the fact that my most of, the first part of my career is all enterprise. So My sales cycles I mean I mean real enterprise like a Salesforce uh, excuse me EDS. My sales cycles were two years or eighteen months minimum. The deals were no less than twenty million dollars, and you know the people would interact with would be a minimum of 15, 20 people on their side minimum. Um, and wow. so it, if you're trying to build a relation and on my side, I had a bid team that was part time on our project, but our, you know, we'd have a bid team of 12, 14, 15 people, you know, all these different technology specialists and we had a full-time bid manager. So if I'm going to run a relationship for 18 months to try and win a deal, sometimes there's nothing to talk about. So what I'm doing is I'm trying to become as expert I can in, for example, the energy upstream energy or oil industry, or um, one of my customers or forestry company, you know, and I learned thing about like the theory of constraints and supply chains and logistics. And if I saw an article that I thought was applicable to their business, I would send it to them. And this sounds simple, but um, I think people are lazy in general about this. They'll get something from product marketing and they'll just spray it to all their people. But I would literally yeah. hand a note and say, Hey, I read this, here's how I think it applies to your business and what I would do, uh, think about doing if I were you. And that worked really well for me. So I did it right from day one. And did that,
2: did that, did that trigger you know, some interesting discussions that maybe had nothing to do with you know, your product or the particular, particular sale? Just discussions about the industry and, and trends and, and what have you. And you know, um, I, think it's a, I think it's a brilliant strategy and I agree with you that it's not being done even remotely at scale because, uh, either people don't think about it or they're too lazy to do the work. But I I can imagine that that, you know, goes a really long, long way, you know, in building a relationship and establishing trust and, and just keeping the deal, you know, active and kind of, um, moving forward, even if it's moving slow.
1: I think you can only do it at a programmatic level for SMB because you can't invest the time, right? You just don't. The transactions are too small. But at a certain size, yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, uh, people, I think of this two by two matrix, right, which, you, which some will have seen because it's been around forever, where you think about um, on the Y axis, you've got your uh, level of trust with an individual. And on the X axis, you've got your level of expertise, And and of course, if you're selling enterprise, you want them to really trust you and believe you know what you're talking about. Now, at that point, you become, everyone talks about being a trusted advisor. I actually don't believe in high-velocity transactional sales that that's at all relevant, right? In transit, you don't have, you're never going to build that level of relation. You don't need to. No, you don't need to. to, Yeah. No, But, but you need to be trustworthy to the extent that I can trust what you say to me. And I need to believe that. You know, you kind of know what you're doing, but I don't expect you to be an expert in my business. So in that context that, you know, uh, Hilda Packard, EDS, uh, even at Salesforce, because it was enterprise, you, you had to figure out how to be in the top right hand of that quadrant, right? Which means that you had to invest in education about your customer's business. And something that was drilled into me as a young fellow was understand your customer's customer. Because that's all your customer thinks about, right? So if you know your customer's customer, then you can have sensible conversations with them.
0: So it's really, really go ahead, Scott. No,
2: I was just I was just gonna say you you your company now delivers most of the trainings in person, right? Right. So how how are you adjusting now? Are you delivering trainings? you know, virtually now or are you are you more nurturing, um, you know, uh, current, current clients and, and deals that are in your pipeline and how are you thinking about, you know, prospecting right now? I'm, I'm very curious about this because one thing that we haven't done on this particular show is talk to other people who are, um, you know, I'd say in, in our field, right? Run your own business like I do, like Richard does and what have you. Yeah. Um, and Richard and I have had these kind of conversations. So I'm really curious, and and hopefully there's people out in the in the audience um, who are entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, whatever you want to call it. Um, so how are you how are you adjusting if if at all?
1: Yeah, well, we're completely adjusting. So um, uh, the my assumption was that no one would know what the heck's going on for the first one or two months. Um, and so what I was doing early on was speaking to all of our alumni to find out, um, and VCs and private equity firms to find out what could I share with people about expectation setting um, from uh, uh, you know, reductions enforced, cost reduction, blah, blah, blah and just be helpful. Um, And not give opinion but give fact. like like I've spoken to the VCs and you know April 15 was the deadline for many of them by which there had to be a replan So if you're thinking about your investments and your sales cycles and whatever else I expect things to really slow down to that point Etc, etc. So the first part was about being helpful Um, And in parallel to that I was like my expectation is that this is going to impact us for quite some time so how do I get people to the point where they realize that a live virtual interaction can be as engaging as in person? And I also, I knew that if I just released it immediately, it would bounce straight off people, A, because they're not thinking about it, and B, they've got other things to worry about, and B, because no one would believe that. But now here we are for many um, locations, yeah. we're almost two months into lockdown.
2: And, and people are warming up to it now a little bit.
1: Well, I, now this is the way we work, right? That's this what is, I mean. They, they yeah. get it. So, so now I'm getting proactive. The new norm. Down. Yeah. So, so, so yes, we're, you know, like in May, for example, I've got my first public frontline manager course, which we're running over two weeks. It's different format, you know? So, I mean, I know that people can only do two, sometimes three hours um, live virtual before. It's just too much. So I've had to reformat it and work like crazy to get that to work. Uh, but then the other thing that's really interesting, perhaps for you two to think about as well, is, uh, I can't name them because it's, uh, I'm under NDA, but I had an inbound from a really impressive SaaS company brand um, that, that needs to train their manager in three regions around the world, um, in uh, you know, India, uh, China, uh, ASEAN. Um, and they're trying to figure out how to do it. They'd normally put people in a room for a couple of days and do it, and they can't. And they knew that we did this and say, so here I am. I've got one of the bigger contracts that I'll have this year that I never would have got before um, because, you know, they wouldn't think to do it remote. And that's going to be the case study, the reference, and the catalyst for us now to have what is essentially a global tan. And I never would have had that before. So, you know, you just got to sort of, as they say in Australia, New Zealand, you got to pin your ears back, lean into the wind and just get after it, you know? (laughs) So that's how I'm feeling right now.
0: It's funny because I'm seeing that too. And it's it's also sort of combining with, what we're also seeing here in the States is that, you know, you know, socially we're starting to see a lot of people say, look, I'm stir crazy. I need to do something. I need to get out of the house. You know, governors are making different kinds of decisions in different parts of the country and letting people sort of get back to normal. Um, just this week alone, I've had three or four people inquire about training, right? To your point, they needed to sort of batten down the hatches, get, figure out what new normal is. And now they're starting to plan ahead. Now they're starting to figure it out. And it's, it's, it's interesting because particularly because the three of us work in a world of disruption, right? So many of our customers are disruptors in general, that they're being disrupted. Our industry's being disrupted. And to some extent our current clients have been very scared and hesitant because they only know the status quo. And now there's a new status quo like it's, a, it's just for me it's sort of interesting to see this parallel happening um across the board in in all these different places so uh,
1: i think it's you know, a really it, interesting opportunity i'm um, sorry bridget uh, i believe there's a really interesting opportunity for you guys because you know i know someone who's launching a um uh, a virtual onboarding next week. Um, there'll be virtual sales kickoffs, right? And they need to inject some new energy and different perspectives. And, you know, whereas in the past, it might not have been affordable to have you fly somewhere, you know, to do this and hope, well, we can have you zoom on in, right? Uh, yeah. In a way that's much more affordable.
2: Not, it's not, not even, I did this not even, just, not even just that, but there's also like the, the, the cost, you know, in terms of time and energy for Richard to fly to, you know, Serbia, Serbia. Or, or, or whatever, right? I got it right this time. I always say something else. Just fly to Serbia, right? This is a trade-off, you know? You could, Whereas you could only do, you know, one virtual sales kickoff, let's say, um, over the course of those. Uh, excuse me, not virtual, but only one sales kickoff over the course of that trip. Now you could do God knows how many, right? <clears throat> over the same, the same amount of time. All scattered across the the world, it's a huge, huge, huge difference.
0: Hey Matt, just out of curiosity, you know, because you're moving into a virtual world, right? How? Because I think people are going to understand this. How do you? What are you changing about the way you deliver so that it becomes more impactful virtually? Right? Because I think because every sales would to hear that tip. I think every manager wants to hear that. How are you doing it?
1: Yeah. So. Um you mean with respect to the delivery of what we do?
0: Well, not just that, just, just sort of in the Matt Cameron way. Look, if I'm gonna go on camera and try and motivate people or train yeah. somebody, or even have a sales call with a customer, right? Yeah. And now it's on Zoom
1: yeah.
0: versus what you were doing, what things are you paying attention to maybe a little differently in your video conversations than you were live?
1: Like, yeah, I'm actually trying to replicate the experience uh, live because live, uh, I can pick up on visual cues and verbal cues to understand how I'm doing. So I'm making sure that I can still do that, right? Um, so you, you'll notice uh, now I'm looking directly at you, right? Because I've set the thing up uh, such that I can I can do that. Um, I'm also um, because it's virtual. Uh, I'm making sure that I, I don't do what we normally do on conference calls where we just dive straight into the business, right? We just get get to the point. Um, I'm making sure that, you know, the start at the start, I do what I would do in an internal meeting a little bit more, which is doing the check-in. Like, how are you showing up to this today? You know, and and, I, and I'm vulnerable with people. Uh, say, hey, I'm ready to go, blah, blah, blah. And I'll share a little bit. And then people will share a little bit with me, which I think is helpful. And then in terms of, uh, for you sales leaders out there perhaps who are trying to engage their team you know with with uh, larger format meetings and whatever else, I think you can take a few cues from us um, if you're fortunate enough to have a spare bedroom or, or some space in your in your house uh, or apartment, uh, you know what i 've done is i've actually set up a proper studio setup with, with with gear so that it's not expensive at all either by the way. Um, so that I can literally walk around and do things. And what I've got this little, here's a little trick for you. I bought this thing called a puppy robot, which is a ridiculous name for a vertical projector. So I can put it right next to the wall and and it gives a hundred inch screen on the wall. So as I'm looking at you, I can see all the faces of everybody on the zoom behind the camera. So I can look at you and I can say, Oh, hey John, you know what I mean? It's a much better experience. they feel like I'm really engaged because I'm literally looking at your face and going, Oh, John, Hey, you answered it. You know? Yeah. So thinking about that sort of stuff.
2: That's great. That's really, really interesting and really good, good advice there, especially for yeah, anybody. I, who's,
0: I, I'm literally going to Amazon right now to look for a puppy robot,
2: especially for anybody who's doing these kind of things at scale and in mass. I mean, Richard and I did an event, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago and there was 750 plus registrations on the event. and. You know, on my laptop, I think I can see about 20 faces at a time is all, right? So I would have loved to have that, you know, wall of, of people and, and whatnot and try to make eye contact with as many people. That's, that's great. That's a great tip.
0: You know, and, and to go along with that, what other kinds of tools are you using? What other software are you using to try and enhance this um, yeah. capability, right? I think people would love to just hear, oh, that's a cool idea. What else?
1: Yeah, yeah. I've been sharing these out to our alumni, actually. So another one's very simple. Most people have issues with dogs and kids and lawnmowers and stuff like this. So I found a crisp with a K, K-R-I-S-P. Some people have heard about that. For me, it's been very, very effective. Um, so um, to get rid of background noise. Um, and it's
0: four, It's like $4 a month. It's nothing. like, I emailed their CEO and I'm like, you guys are leaving so much money take table. Huh?
1: Well, I'm glad I got an annual contract because he's probably going to double it now, thanks to you, Richard. Yeah, way to uh, go, Richard. To yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's really. Um,
0: um, I got zero response, and they just announced some partnership with somebody. And I'm like, you're, yeah, you need to go after. They, they have a unique B2B and B2C. Plan.
2: Richard's Richard's got some choppy uh, choppy audio right now. They're early. Try to it. What else? Out. So, yeah, what, yeah, other uh, you, what other than crisp? What other than are you using, Matt?
1: So, um, from a technology standpoint, uh, nothing nothing fancy. But what I will say is, if you're trying to engage your team, um, silly things. So, for example, um, I'm going to grab something. I, what I do, and I would do this in a sales meeting if I were you, I would say, all right, team, today we've got some interaction. I'm going to ask you some questions, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, you know, for those of you who engage, uh, there's a reward. And so, like, you know, I've got a stuffed Kiwi here, which seems stupid, but you wouldn't believe how much more engagement I get because someone wants to win this Kiwi.
2: Yeah. Uh,
1: right?
2: Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> I, I used to do something like that with these little toy cars. And, and we, we used to have, like, the pace car award. And you'd, you'd walk around the sales floor and these people would be displaying this tiny toy car on their desk all over the place. And some people would have a half dozen and what have you. So I love the, yeah, the yeah, actually, little key. I've got one more thing for you.
1: Um, so, you know, how, now having how you're in an office, uh, you're always getting tapped on the shoulder. So something I teach SDR managers and AE managers is, look, if you just make, give yourself like a buffer. If you don't immediately answer a question, oftentimes they'll figure it out for themselves, right? Uh, and it helps enable them, so they don't become reliant on you. So what I what I do uh, is I send these out. Who's have you have you guys been to a, a Brazilian Churrasco steakhouse before? If you eat meat, of course,
2: absolutely, right. yeah.
1: Red, red and green. If you leave it on green, I yeah. just keep
2: bringing, them. and that's yeah, the they keep bringing it,
1: right? Yeah, reps just keep bringing it. So what I got created was the sassy hockey puck. There's the green. You're allowed to talk to me, but if I flip this sucker over, do not interrupt it's 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 silly, but it's fun, and people love it, right? So little things like that, I think are helpful um it just themselves- worked. it just
2: worked on it just worked on me. I wanted to say something, and, and the red thing was staring at me, and I'm like, "Oh, you better not say anything right now. You got to wait till he puts the puck down." <laughs> That's brilliant. I love it yeah so
1: so i would say like for sales leaders on the call i i i can't emphasize the value of whimsy in your meetings right like i was known always as a sales leaders pretty buttoned down you know and i know i am seem pretty cash these days but i'd always wear a suit because i was an enterprise guy i took you know what we did very seriously i held everyone to high standards however you know, I'm human and I want people to enjoy the experience. And therefore, in the weekly team meetings, I would always have a silly theme, right? I'd start it in, in Australia. This is a little bit uh, perhaps on the edge. But, you know, if, if there was a shark attack, which to be frank with you, isn't that uncommon in Australia? Um, <laughs> I'd, I'd have a big picture of a, of a silly shark. And I'd go, I'm this week's meeting sponsored by Chompy the shark, you know, or something like that. You know, just break it up. Don't be all data, yeah.
2: all serious yeah. the whole time. That's great. That's great. Well, I I'm, I'm a. Yeah, well, you and me, you and me both. I used to be great at that stuff when I was running the team in the office and everything. You know? Now, now I feel like I'm working so much, I'm just like yeah. too much of a too much of a robot sometimes, you know. So I'm gonna have to implement that feedback directly. So you just helped me out today, Matt, straight away. What um, oh, helps
0: me?
1: Uh, my, my, my wife, uh, is, is in the circus. So, uh, we a whole bunch of friends that are in Cirque du Soleil and whatever else. And, uh, and so if you, if you hang out with them enough, these are adults who are, you know, many of them approaching 40 or just beyond 40 who are still playing like children. And it just mm-hmm. reminds you, don't stop playing and don't start yeah. taking yourself too serious.
2: That's great. Well, Hey, but we're, uh, we're almost out of time here. I gotta, I gotta, run. I know Richard, Richard does too. Um, what can we do? What, what is there any questions that you have for us or any way that we can add value to you and be helpful? We always try to end the show by, uh, turning it around and and asking folks what we can do to be helpful, answer any questions that, that you have, you know?
1: Yeah. I mean, for me, one of the big themes that I have at the moment is trying to um, support people, think through the player coach role. And I'm sure you see this all the time. Um, it's a sort of a necessary evil for companies that are uh, growing because you don't have the unique economics to do it. And then for large organizations, some people use it as sort of a development uh, practice. You become the player coach and then you become the leader. Um, the one thing I, I would ask uh, is that as you go around the, the traps and you find these people in this role, is you help leadership realize that there are certain things a player coach is good at. And remember, coach is the emphasis, right? And therefore I'm helping you close deals. I'm helping you get better at closing deals. I'm progressing your pipeline, but I'm not HR. So I don't do firing. I don't do performance improvement plans, right? I'm, I shouldn't be having to manage up too much, all that sort of carry on. Love your perspective on that as we close out um, because I just, I just see in these times when layers of management are getting ripped out and people are you know, unexpectedly finding they have to lead a team, there's so much pressure, stress, and, and responsibility being put on their shoulders.
2: Yeah, I, I completely agree. I, I actually loathe the player-coach model and, and have never put it in put it into place when I uh, when I built and and led teams because I think it's a it's a panacea or a band-aid to sort of say to somebody, okay we'll we'll kind of put you in a leadership position but oh by the way you still have a huge quota and you still have the bag to carry to carry and that's actually what we really care about the most and so we'll barely invest in the coaching at all but we'll hope that this kind of keeps you on the hook you know a little bit longer so that, yeah my my perspective is just gosh I, I really would love to see leadership you know not put people in that in that
0: position um, where somebody's trying to split their split their role yeah. all all the player coach role is is management under management saying we don't want to spend money. that's all it is, and i it's an easy thing to conceptualize but it's not, you can't execute well on it. And if you do, you found a, a very, very special unicorn, not, not something that can scale, right? And so for That's me, not- I, I, when I hear it, I ask people, my first question is, great, how much time are they spending on playing versus coaching? And nobody knows how to answer the question. And then I say, then you can't tell me it's working. You can't tell me other than the fact you just don't want to spend an extra little bit of money to hire a manager full time. Like that's mm-hmm. the only reason it exists. Um and and to Scott's point, you know, if you think you've got you're ready to bring in a player coach, you're really ready to bring in a coach, you're just not committed to the to the idea of another mayor management person. And that's the conversation I have with people because I smile on it all the time.
1: I think in general, I agree. However, you know, the reality is if you're a very, very small company, you can't, unit economics don't work if you've got two sales reps and one manager. Like you're literally, the CAC is terrible. So I I think there is a time and place where it has to be a necessary evil, but you need to take away all the non-critical functions like the reporting and the, the, the stuff that enablement or ops or someone else in the company can do to take that away. Um, as you get through this period. And I also, to any player coach listening, I always say, look, ask your leadership what must be true before I become a pure manager. Let's set a line in the sand. Because when that happens, then I dump my individual quota. And if there's no end in sight, then I wouldn't
2: take the role. And I I actually just had a very similar conversation yesterday with one of my clients. And I, I was saying, you need to be explicitly clear about what the milestones are, right? It can't just be like, well, I need, this was the CEO telling me, um, you know, well, I need to have faith and and see traction and see results in order to do this. And I'm like, well, what does that mean? Well, you know, I I need to see growth. I'm like, well, how much growth? How many deals? How many new clients? What does your head of sales have to do very, very specifically in order to show you that, you know, you should dump gasoline on the organization and, and grow, 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 grow. Right. So I, I love that um that advice that you just gave about, you know, um tell them specifically about what they, they need to do. That's awesome. So
0: So we gotta I'll- we gotta stop here, but um I'd love to have you come back on and, and let's just have an entire conversation around the player coach role. Like I think that would be a really good even if it's fifteen or twenty minutes, I think that'd be great. I just have to jump to another Zoom and I gotta use this line to do it. So <laughs>
1: All right, guys. it's great talking to you. I've had
2: fun. Thanks for having me on. All
0: right, Thanks, man, I appreciate it, man.